Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Hey, I'm glad you found this. I hope it's morning where you are. I hope it's evening where you are. I hope it's a time of the day where you are. I hope it's where you enjoy listening to podcasts. Morning and evening. At the same morning time. could be morning and evening, same time. Yeah. Maybe you live up in the like the way up in the northern hemisphere where the sun never sets. Whoa. Whatever works for you. As long as you're kicking back listening to the podcast, enjoying yourself, then I hope that you're enjoying the Drunken UX podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, this is episode number 92, and we're going to be talking about what you should be doing with Link Rot on your websites. I'm your host, Michael Feenan. I'm your other other host, Aaron. How you doing, Michael? Michael Feenan is doing well. How is other Aaron doing? Doing okay. Um, That's uh, best I can hope for. <laughs> I don't know about you, but and I don't mean to be so banal as to talk about the weather, but we've had three thunderstorms this past week, and it's been amazing. Uh, no, that's not good here because the rain has nowhere to go in Kansas, so it sits on the ground and turns into humidity. We have humidity also. Uh, we it's had a heat not, wave. Not good. Not as bad as Canada. We were we didn't quite hit a hundred degrees, but we got close. Well, if you want to talk about other bun what banal banal banalities, banal, I hate that. That is such a hard word to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, if you want to talk about other banal things and find us on the Instagram at Drunken UX Podcast or Twitter or Facebook at slash Drunken UX, you can always come chat with us in our favorite Discord server. That's DrunkenUXPodcast.com slash Discord. Let's see. Uh, drinky poo wise, I'm going to disappoint everybody this week because I literally just ate dinner and I've got a giant cup of sweet tea and <laughs> I am not ready to begin drinking just yet. So. Sweet tea it is. Maybe I'll mix a little vodka in by the end of the show, but <laughs> sweet tea is the name of the game tonight. I'm not going to go into notes on that because it's sweet tea from Hardee's. It's basically like tea-flavored Kool-Aid. <laughs> I, I also am going to disappoint everyone uh, because I'm also not drinking anything tonight, but I will maybe make up for it by pointing out a cool recipe for solar tea that I make. I, I have this really big container. It's a big plastic thing with a faucet on the end of it. And I throw some Louisiana tea bags and like water and then some mint leaves from my garden. And then add some like lemon and sugar to it afterwards to brew in bed. And it's sun flavored? Uh, the sun is what like helps. That would be spicy. <laughs> it's very hot. Just a few million degrees, man. Can I use the moon? Can I reflect the sunlight off the moon and use that? I, I don't know. That's it. I, I kind of want to try that now. <laughs> Time to make moon tea, folks. <laughs> Everybody, this week, we're going to kick things off uh, with a look at an article. And this is just a fun little thing. It, it popped up in my feed and it, it deals with so much of what we talk about. Um, and when we like when we spoke at UX at UW about um, inclusive design and, and why accessibility matters in your uh, in your design patterns. Part of that message comes back to. It's not necessarily about just helping the blind person or just helping the person with motor control issues. It's about making things work for everybody in every situation. Uh, Christian Heilman has an article over at his blog. The article is called The Unseen Benefits of Accessibility. He opens it up with this great little uh, pie chart. Um, <laughs> this is great. And I will describe to you in vivid detail here. Um, it's a pie chart with uh, three chunks Two very tiny slivers, uh, and the title of the chart is Why I Use Subtitles. 
Sliver 1 says, because I can't understand the language. Sliver 2 says, because there are too many accents and slang. And then, like, the 98% of the rest of the chart is, <laughs> because I'm gonna eat chips. <laughs> That's legit. <laughs> and that, yeah, no, and, and we talked about this when we gave that talk the same way, um, maybe not with chips, but it's like, maybe you're on the subway headed mm -hmm. to work. Maybe you're in a crowded office, you know, an open office type situation where you can't close the door and turn your speakers on. Uh, there are a myriad of reasons why things like subtitles are useful to people who aren't deaf. Not the least of which being, and, and he gets into some of this in the article, things like, hey, if you've got a transcript for your audio or your video and you put that on a web page, that's instant SEO value because mm -hmm. now Google can index all of the content of that video. Caveat being, yes, Google is actively working on indexing audio video content based on machine uh, uh, natural language processing. Mm -hmm. But do you want them making those choices on <laughs> your behalf some, when they screw robot? things up? Or do you want to tell them exactly <laughs> what is in your content? This is one of those fun things. If you ever, ever looked at like a YouTube video with auto captioning, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Like it's good. Like it is remarkably yeah. good at this point. Still not great. Still <laughs> makes mistakes. Sometimes those mistakes are hilarious. I would say that this chart is accurate for me. And I would also add because I have really bad tinnitus and also because sometimes shows and movies the the volume dynamics are really really drastically different and so you'll have like why are you talking like this and then all of a sudden Aah! and when you're trying to watch a movie or something late at night and your kids are asleep you don't always want to have like loud noises so you have to turn the volume down yeah and he gives the example of uh he grew up in germany and a lot of the shows that came over would be dubbed but in this case, uh, he would watch like Monty Python, which came over in English, but mm -hmm. was subtitled in German. Okay. And so that's part of how he learned English. Oh. And that's part of how you learn a language, right? You can learn to read and write a language versus speak a language are two very different things and requires, you know, a different mode of learning. And being able to watch something and see those words in real time can really help that process. And that's just one of those other um, out, you know, mm -hmm. outlier type examples. There, there's a quote, and I'm I want to read this from the article because I I really thought it drove home the overall sentiment. Accessibility to me means hardcore usability. You make it work for extreme cases, and thus make it better for everybody. And by thinking like that, accessibility work isn't a chore or something we need to do to be legally compliant, but it is a quality feature of our products. Mm -hmm. We we had a, a phrase that we used um, in terms of like when you start building things for people mm -hmm. to do the right thing, and we called it kind of design. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, kind design, and that's kind of the way we think about this. That hardcore usability is kind design because mm -hmm. it's meant to make everything easier for anybody who is consuming that product you use. And you will always have blind spots. You will always miss something. There's no way around it. And what makes the difference is how you react to those things when you hear about those blind spots. And if you're really committed to usability, you're really ex committed to accessibility and inclusive design, you hear about those things and you integrate it into what you do mm -hmm. because it's just part of the process. Hearing that a user has a problem, responding to that and fixing the problem is how you implement kind design in practice, in my opinion. Yeah. 
he's really talking about one very specific case in terms of like how subtitling is good usability, good accessibility. Sure. But the, the ethos of everything that he is writing there though goes back to that underlying principle that when you start thinking about this, not in terms of, well, how's the colorblind user going to use this? Mm-hmm. And instead start thinking about it in terms of how is everybody going to use this? Yeah. And how do I make it the easiest I can for them? That changes the way you look at the landscape. Kind kindness is one of those things that is a difficult thing to do sometimes, but is always worth it. It just in in anything at all, not just design, but anything. You know what it what the difference maker on it is is it's the difference between making something that meets a spec and making something you're proud of. Sure, right? Like I can I can make something to meet a spec that is completely inaccessible, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's like. The difference is I'm going to make the thing that I am proud to show off because I know people will look at it. The, the, the thing about kind design is when it is done and it's done well and uh, use the, the more broad term inclusive design, uh, universal design. Mm-hmm. When, when you do these things and do them right, people can look at that product and instinctively know that links were gone to mm-hmm. to make it better. Sure. And they may not put their thumb on it. They may not be able to call it out specifically, but you always know those things when you see them and when you buy them and interact with them, when you find a piece of software that you're enjoying using, we all have those things that are just like a joy to, you know, have in our lives at that point and make use of. And mm-hmm. we come back to them constantly. I would agree with that. I think that even if, even if you never see the reaction or the, like, if you never get recognition, like it's still like, still important to do um just because i think that we all we all collectively benefit when we all act more kindly so go check that out uh like i say link in the show notes christian heilman uh great article shout out to him and let us know how you implement kind design Okay, so we're going to rewind the clock here for this episode, and we're going to go back to June, and there's an article over at The Atlantic called The Internet is Rotting. This is from Jonathan Zittrain over uh, at Harvard, where he's a professor, and he's talking about what happens when links start falling apart on our websites. Now, this episode is not going to be a development talk. It's not really going to be a design talk. It will be a UX talk. It will be a content strategy talk, and if we're lucky, I think we're going to get into some maybe underlying internet philosophy positing on our part. And so we're going to have some fun with this, I think. But Mm -hmm. we want to talk about what happens when links rot. I like like the title of the article that's in the um, the URL, which I think is probably like the original title of the article. The internet is a collective hallucination. I'm not sure what that's about exactly. The the URL does not match the title, which is not like a thing that has to be true, but it definitely feels like there was another title going on at some I'm point. I'm pretty sure that they're probably using WordPress and that that was the initial title because the permalink was made. And once the permalink's made, they didn't want to change it. Yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah. for good reason, right? That's an <laughs> excellent point for the purposes of this episode. <laughs> so when we talk about like, 
link rot? What exactly do we mean? Link rot is a content issue. Um, it's also a quality and a trust issue to a lesser extent. That there's this idea that, and you'll hear it a lot in in terms of usability and accessibility, that links are a contract with the user. When a person sees a link, they expect to be able to click on that link and arrive at a thing described by the text mm-hmm. encompassing that link. And when they don't, that is followed by disappointment. Mm-hmm. And depending on the nature of that disappointment, that may reflect badly on where that content originally was, but it may reflect badly on you for not keeping it up. Mm. This is an easy problem to solve when it's your own links. But we're not just talking about like, oh, a link broke. Because we can all because a 404 is easy, right? A 404 is easy to understand. Something's not there anymore. But one of the other problems, and it's a lot harder to measure, is what happens when stuff on a page changes you can link to a page that has information on it today and go back six months later and that information may be gone Mm -hmm. that's can be a a huge problem if you're trying to cite something to like make a point or to showcase something and somebody says i don't think that's true that doesn't sound right and they click on it they go to the page and like well this page doesn't even say that (laughs) it's like putting putting getting that edit button we all want on twitter just change what your tweets say. If you've ever been, uh, if you ever did inter, not internet debate, <laughs> that's a whole other ball of wax, <laughs> high school debate, mm-hmm. uh, you you know that phrase, right? Oh, that doesn't say that. That's, mm-hmm. That is not what that is. That's not how that's worded. <laughs> in this case, though, it's one thing when the text is on a piece of paper in front of you that you're mm-hmm. reading, and it can't change. The interpretation can change, but the words are stuck on that page. Right. The internet doesn't work that way. There's a, uh, speaking of citations, again, we'll have show notes on this, um, over at perma.cc, they've got a, a site, and this is, this comes from a couple of different chunks of research, some of which was done by, uh, Lawrence Lessig, who is a personal favorite person of mine. We should, we should um, probably disclose that perma.cc was created, uh, partly by Jonathan Zittrain. Yes. Yeah. That's true too. Uh, over there. It's, it's managed by like a collective of legal review, law review yeah. journals and libraries. Um, so it's, it's not like just a product he runs. It is right, sort of right. a non-profity kind of it's, thing, but it's a cool, it's a cool project. Uh, I mean, they have like a for fee service and everything. It's a cool project though. And I just wanted to yeah. disclose that. But on, on the homepage, they cite some of this research, uh, from a couple years ago that said, over 50% of cited links in Supreme Court opinions no longer point to the intended page. Roughly 70% of cited links in academic legal journals and 20% of all science, technology, and medical medicine articles suffer from link rot. Okay, I think this is really neat, especially with the original tar- title of the article, the collective hallucination thing. So, like, on one hand, you have... This, the collective hallucination of the internet, which is, you know, always ephemeral, always shifting, always moving, growing, attracting, et cetera. And then on the other hand, you have the Supreme Court, which for America is about as firm and like written to stone almost literally as you could possibly get. Like our legal codex is very slow moving and enduring. And so. To collide them together like this is just really wild. So let's talk here about what causes link rot. I think that's probably the place to start, right? You write an article, 
we've all, you know, had either created a blog post at some point or referenced something on, in a Facebook post. We linked mm-hmm. to a page, right? And then at some point, we discover that link is no longer good. What are the things that can cause us that we should be looking out for? One uh, over at Orbit Media, they did a, some research. I believe it was over like the 200 largest websites or something along those lines. And they went back through time and determined that the average lifespan of a website design was two years, seven months, two and a half years, let's hmm. call it. Let's see that. So, so it is on average a website can be expected to change like significantly every two and a half years. Part of the reason that design lifespan matters to LinkRot is that when you do a redesign, frequently you come up with a new IA. Mm-hmm. That's uh, information architecture, right? Yeah. So you reorganize the stuff on your site. You don't necessarily keep everything where it was. You may keep a lot of it exactly where it is, mm-hmm. but pages will move around. But that moving around, that reshuffling of information, even though the information still exists, it's still there, it's no longer where it was when you created mm-hmm. your link. And if somebody clicks that link and lands on that site and ends up on a 404 page or ends up on the home page, the odds that they are going to go looking for that information is almost zero. This is doubly so when you're dealing with a like a database-driven site like WordPress or what are the other ones? Drupal? Joomla? Any of those like any of those solutions that have um where the URL is sort of like using mod rewrite or some kind of ISAPI rewriting engine and not referring to a, like a file on the file system. That's even more ephemeral one. Yeah. Uh the other thing, page lifespan. Over at the Library of Congress, they did some research. Now, this is old research, mind you, um, but I'm gonna comment on that. Mm-hmm. They said the average lifespan of a page could okay. be expected to be a hundred days. Which what is, is nothing. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that the the page no longer exists after a hundred days? Or right that the that it was not accessible at the place it was. Really? Now huh. that's that's research from 2011, which isn't the dark ages, but it's a decade ago. Mm-hmm. I can expect that that number is probably not the same today. Mm-hmm. I want to think it would be higher. I would believe it is lower. Yeah. But here's the thing about that. Let's pretend it's longer. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend it's a lot longer. Let's say it's a year. The okay. average page lifespan is one year. That's nothing in terms of actual scale. Especially when we get into some of the uh, the other challenges we're going to talk about here. Like, one year is not a long time. That's plenty of time to let things break. Even if even if it was 100% of the average design lifespan of a site, that's still just two years and seven months. That's like barely a thousand days. Not even yeah. a thousand days. I mean, two and a half years, again, like, imagine the things that you look at on a daily basis on the internet that have probably been up about two and a half years, and imagine those things vanishing. Where would that leave you? What would that do to, you know, your research? Good example, Stack Overflow. Mm-hmm. We've got two oh, things yeah. to consider here. <laughs> it's funny that, like, the Stack Overflow and those sorts of things are a place that I wish had more link rot, 
because I hate refer like asking a question and then finding an article that's like 10 years old or something yeah. that doesn't apply anymore and it's polluting my search results. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you though, but I constantly run into answers with links that aren't any good anymore. Constantly. Uh, it's like 50-50 for me, I think. But yeah, I know what you mean. Here's the real, and here, well, here's two, two real world examples of this, right? Mm -hmm. Let's stick with Stack Overflow for a second. Stack Overflow, no longer owned by Stack Overflow. They have been bought. Wait, what? You, you knew this. I did? How, how do you not know this? I, I don't know. I, the rock I live under is very comfortable. Yeah. So Stack Stack Overflow got bought by a company called Prosys. I did not know this. For 1.8 B- b- billion dollars. Okay. Now, Prosys, you probably don't know the name of. Um, Pro S Y S or S I S? S U S. Okay. Like, like it's sus, right? They are pro <laughs> at being sus. That's kind of a bad joke, but. Oh, okay. So they've walked onto the scene. They picked it up. Now, the current way the wind is blowing is that well nothing's going to change for stack overflow right now (laughs) they couldn't walk in and change it you know on a whim anyway there's too much infrastructure to deal with it'd be a big lift it would take time microsoft also said they were going to not change github and now they're offering ai to help code with you well to get around but that's they're adding stuff though that's different Uh, they haven't taken anything away from us at github but in in process's case yeah we probably have good reason to think that it won't change this year and probably next year <laughs> i love reading their name is like pro at being sus <laughs> but what happens in a couple years when they change the model or when mm-hmm. they redesign it when they think they can improve upon it you have to wait for them to put the signage up that says like something that we would just assume is free before like making a stack overflow account putting a thing that says zero dollars that that's when you know the winds are going to start changing with that. Premium access is free. Here's another example, though. Uh, Yahoo questions. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. That w- okay. I do remember that. That was that was a sad day because that was an old like mainstay. That'd be like if Wikipedia suddenly died. It, so, that, that's yeah. like that level severity. Yahoo comes in and they just say we're shutting down questions. It's going away. We're getting rid of it. It's uh, not going to be preserved. It's not going to be, you know, frozen and placed somewhere. Who do they think they are? Google? They just got rid of it. And uh, so anybody who linked to anything at Yahoo Questions, everything broke all at once. Here's mm-hmm. this giant thumbprint of the internet. Now gone. Now, granted, a lot of the stuff on Yahoo Questions was crap. Mm-hmm. But that was, no, I don't, okay, yeah, it was crap. But like, man, it had like, how is Babby formed? And um, other I I forgot all of them, but there was a whole oh, bunch of so much highbrow stuff. Let me. Oh tell yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't change the fact that it illustrates just how ephemeral, just how volatile mm-hmm. links on the internet are. You know, and how easy it is for something that we take for granted that is always there and would always be there can just go away uh, without expectation. Every link to any Yahoo Answers question URL is now dead. Is dead. I don't know how many there are. I'm sure there's more than one, and they're all dead. Um, Link Half-Life. Uh, 
Zomdeer.com uh, has some research on that. They came up with the the estimate that for a given website, link half-life is about two years. Um, they that, went through... Outbound or inbound? Uh, total. Like, okay, so either direction. It, that That's... Uh, I, I think it would be, given the way they tested it, it would be mostly outbound because they okay. were looking at links on... Do do the links on this website work, whether they Got are it. internal or external? Okay. Um, but yeah, not looking at backlinks. Backlinks are, and we'll we'll get into this here next. But backlinks are a whole other like challenge. Um, that seems roughly consistent with the average lifespan of a site, though. For the right, yeah, like you've got these different organizations coming up with very similar statistics at that mm-hmm. point, and you're they're basically saying like. You can expect to lose upwards of half of your links over the course of two years on a website if you're not keeping them up. Um, WooRank tested 22 million sites and found that of, of those 22 million, 12% had, uh, or 12% of the links 404 mm-hmm. and 11% of the links just redirected to a homepage. I really don't like that when they, when sites do that. If you, if you have a link, if you have an inbound link and it points to something that doesn't exist anymore, you should either four ten it or four oh four it. It yeah, it should give Don't you a four hundred error. You're not helping anyone by redirecting to the homepage. Stop doing that, please. Stop. And just because I don't shy away from pointing the finger at us, mm-hmm. um, I did run a test against druckenux.com before we re- uh, started recording this episode. We currently have a link error rate of five point two percent as of right now. So that's a better than average? It's better than average. Um, that's okay. over the course of four years worth of content. So we definitely are faring pretty well. Mm-hmm. I also think we operate in an industry where the folks we link to have a higher than normal concern for keeping stuff available. That's true. I, I'm betting that maybe the a lot of the error links we have are from show note links, probably. they Yes, they absolutely are. Yeah. And I'm gonna be making a commitment to go through. I may not get all of them because mm-hmm. I mean it's it's a fair number. There, I mean, we're talking thousands of links. So even mm-hmm. at five point two percent, it's a lot of links. But right. I'm gonna try to go through our show notes and try to clean up some of those. Um, at the very least, you know, strike them out so people don't try to click on them. But right, that's the maintenance side of this question. Mm-hmm. So the 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 three challenging groupings of links that you have to kind of be aware of. Um, the first one is internal 404s, or I say 404s, really what I mean is link errors. Links can error a number of ways. You got, they can... Uh, well, the bad, one we're going to... Yeah, see, 404 is the most often. Yeah, 404 is the most common one, but you could have a bad redirect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have something moved but not redirected. Um, you could have a... A domain could be gone entirely. Like, the the domain itself is 404, so to speak. Um but like if a yeah if I had a so a good example right I had a game site and I think I've mentioned this in, in a past episode and I was just really stupid I wasn't paying attention to my domain uh, registrations oh, lapsed I had I had moved it yeah to a new registrar and thought <laughs> I had auto renewal turned on and I didn't and I just didn't pay attention to the warnings I was getting because in my head I'm like oh no it's fine it's gonna auto renew right and it didn't and I lost yeah. the domain and so in one you know fateful moment. I suddenly broke the hundreds and hundreds of links mm-hmm. on this gaming site that people used. And I had, I moved it. I got a new domain. I, I 
to this day have not gotten the old domain back. Um, the site still exists. The stuff is still there, but it's not where anybody, you know, had their links pointing to. Yeah. Uh, so domains can go away. That is a very real problem as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so internal links though are what, what I refer to for completely internal. So it's like you mm-hmm. linking to your contact page in your menu. Your, it's your na- navigation links. Yeah. Nav yeah. links, things like that. Links inside of your own pages to your privacy policy. Mm-hmm. Stuff, links on things you control to things you control. So when you do that redesign every two and a half years, you have the capacity to know where your links are and fix them preemptively so that you never have that. Now, you may have too many of them to keep up with. That's fine. You, at, you still have the capacity to control the outcome. Mm-hmm. either way the second group is inbound bad links these are your backlinks these are the things other people have linked to your stuff mm-hmm. and you've moved something on your site or deleted your site deleted the page and now their backlink is bad you have no control over that to an extent you can't fix their links but you can Use redirects, and we'll talk about that here in in a minute about what you can do about link rot. Mm-hmm. You have some control to make sure the user gets what they expect, uh, but you can't go to the other person's site and fix their problem. You can email them, of course, but uh, who knows? Right. The third group are your outbound bad links. So these right. are the inverse. These are backlinks you've created to other people. So in our show notes, all of the articles and research and surveys and things that we link to when we are talking about this stuff in these episodes, all of those outbounds, that's where a lot of our bad links are now starting to occur with a lot mm-hmm. of these sites that aren't there anymore, those pages that aren't there anymore. I have the power to change my links. I can fix my own links, but if the content is gone, I can't make the content be there. I can't make it come back. So I, I have very limited options as to how to resolve that problem at that point. This reminds me of those like four quadrant charts where you have one of them is things you know about yourself and things everyone else knows about you. And then you have the one things you know about yourself that no one else knows about you. And then you have the one things other people know about you that you don't know about yourself. And then the last one things you don't know and things no one else knows. So we're right. missing a fourth one here. I'm not sure. I, I don't know what the fourth one would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like ro- robot created links, like in a, like a, like a bot list of links created to other procedurally generated content. I don't know. So here's <laughs> the sort of landing point for this, right? Mm-hmm. What on earth are we going to do about link rot? Now, the article over at the Atlantic, it's a long article. I mean, yeah. it's the well, it Atlantic. Is, it's the Atlantic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they aren't known for brevity. <laughs> and and he gets into a whole lot of stuff talking about this and what the implications of it are. Because it's a simple concept, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. stuff moves around. Things break. Then it's a broken link and you just fix the link. What's the big deal? Mm-hmm. But it is a big deal because we can't solve the underlying problem. We can only solve a symptom. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about how you solve the symptom. And then I want to talk about the problem 
the actual problem here. The first thing you can do is use an archival service to link to. There, there are three that uh, are, are most people will know or may know. Archive.org is obviously the big one with the Wayback Machine. Yeah. yeah. Almost everybody has used it at some point. There's also a service called Website, like Web C I T E. Oh, and, okay. And in the one we mentioned at the start of the show, Perma.cc. These okay. all do fundamentally the same thing. They will take a snapshot of a page and store it, and you can link through their service to that page so that you can have relative confidence that it will stay there for a while. Mm -hmm. All of these have some different challenges, though. So, like, with website, website is mainly an academic citing resource, uh, for the most part. Um, and they they offer this sort of on-demand uh, archiving of pages in perpetuity. They don't crawl things. You submit stuff to them, and then they cache it. Except now when you go to their site, they have this little box on the top page that says, we are currently not accepting archiving requests. The archival <laughs> state snapshots of websites that have been archived with website in the past can still be accessed and cited. But apparently, they aren't accepting anything new, which is wow. problematic and not especially useful. Archive.org on the other hand, they crawl things over time. Mm -hmm. They take snapshots over time. They do have an API uh, I'm not going to get into, but you can like you can request them to come in and, and snapshot something. The thing is, archive.org doesn't have everything. They have a lot, though. They have they, a lot. They, they, they don't they aren't like I wouldn't go there if I wanted the authoritative answer on some content that was old. But you go there when it's like, oh, yeah, like there used to be this thing. And it's like gives you breadcrumbs that you can maybe use to find more information elsewhere. And their snapshots can be middling sometimes mm -hmm. in quality, depending on you know the way the site was built. It's not bad. It's it's definitely out of all of these, it's probably going to be the one that I would suggest you use uh, ab above any of these other two. Perma.cc is pretty cool. Has a lot of potential. But it's not free unless you're uh, working with one of their affiliated organizations. And that's the one that with uh, Jonathan Zetra, right? Had, right. Which I get it. Like, yeah, I'm I'm absolutely not criticizing them for needing to make money. I, sure. I understand that that running that kind of service is going to chew up bandwidth. That's going to be costly. Right. But a free account, you can only archive ten links, and then you have to pay for that service. And if it's not something that you're making, you know, you're living on, you just want to have content security it's not necessarily worth the expenditure at that point. And there really aren't a lot of other tools that can step in here that aren't variations of these three and will likely cost you money. Mm -hmm. I think that, well, a perma is kind of addressing a very specific use case too, right? They're right. specifically targeting like law libraries because of that Supreme court issue. Yeah. That was mentioned they, previously. they will let you use it for pretty much anything, but they definitely were set up kind of like website. Website mm -hmm. is was set up as an academic research. Perma.cc is set up as a research and legal uh, authority type setup. Uh, there is a secondary concern. This gets a little bit into the philosophical, but I think it's unique enough to archival systems that I'm going to say mm -hmm. it now, which is you become a vampire. I'm sorry? By using those services, you're draining the target site 
of its authority and its SEO value, which kind of sucks. Wait, can you <laughs> pun intended? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I, wait, hey, you, I thought about clarify, this. Can you clarify what you mean by that? Who's who's the vampire? Who is the person making the link? Is so, for instance, if we were using let's let's say we had a pun.cc uh, okay. account, and sure. I use that for all of our siding of our show notes. That's mm-hmm. great. Our users can trust that when they click on the links in our show notes, they would always get the article that, or, or research or code example that we're referencing. But mm-hmm. it means that the people who wrote that content don't get the backlink score right. in, in Google. It's like, it's like retweeting someone. Right. And then getting engagement on your retweet instead of on the original. It's Yeah, we are starving them of that value. And backlink value is one of you know, those really hard to get things that is scored usually pretty well, especially if you're getting backlinks from like a highly rated site. Google does all their math, all their algorithmic stuff to check that. Mm-hmm. And if all of a sudden you stop providing all of those links, that's kind of crappy. Uh, and it's not not like crappy in the sense that you are intentionally trying to hurt them. It's just a crappy side effect of... Mm-hmm trying to solve that problem. Yeah. Uh, And none of them have a solution to that problem at this point. Um, The next thing you can do is if if it's internal links or it's the backlinks to Mm -hmm. you is leveraging redirects. Mm -hmm. Yes. I I really love this solution. Um, And... I would say when I was at Cornell, especially, we were really good about it. We had um, my tech leads position was that any inbound links should never hit a 404. They should always hit a redirect. I know this is kind of like doubling back on what I said earlier, but I was saying don't redirect your homepage. Um, we would always redirect them to whatever is the, the best possible replacement for that content. Um but I, I think that, uh, so if there's a 301 and a 302. And if you are moving content or doing an IA restructure or changing anything at all, you want to use a 301 and then Google will updates its, updates its indices, uh, with that. Um, 302 is just if it's like a temporary thing. Uh, but yeah, definitely if you, if you should be looking at your 404 link reports and then any four of inbound 404s you have, you should slap a redirect on them, unless it's like obviously someone like probing or whatever. In which case, screw those guys. <laughs> yeah, and there there are more uh, redirect types, but those are mm-hmm. like the two that you will care about for the most part. Right. Um, but the trick to using redirects is using them correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, to your point, this idea that you should never hit a four hundred four, I absolutely mm-hmm. do not subscribe to. Okay. Sometimes things go away, and in those situations, it is correct and appropriate to land on a 404 or you 410 can your, or 410 yeah and you can make that 404 page have a search box on it have a directory reference on it have anything you need to help the person find something equivalent but in some cases like the to me a redirect is is truly meant to send you to the same stuff at a different location sure uh so I mean that that's my take on it, and there are different schools of thought on on all of that. I don't disagree with that. I I think the point though is that like you shouldn't be uh, indifferent to the fact that the the link is bad. 
Oh yeah, no, definitely not. And so either take a stance, either give them replacement content, tell them that the link is bad, give a 404, 410, whatever, but don't redirect your homepage. <laughs> don't, like don't gaslight your audience and be like, what? What? You were looking for this link? Obviously you're looking for the homepage. Yeah. There's a plugin if you use WordPress or Drupal that's interesting to say the least. It's called Amberlink. Go to amberlink.org if you want to take a look at it. It's a plugin that is what they do is very cool. And mm-hmm. they when I said earlier with the archival services how they rob SEO value by mm-hmm. linking you not to the original author. Right. Um Amberlink does an interesting thing where when you add a link to your page, it goes out and it takes its own snapshot of that content and stores it for you. And it will, my understanding, now I have not used Amberlink, but this is my understanding Mm -hmm. of it, is that it will, when you click that link, it does a prefetch on it or something along those lines. And if the page is there, then it just sends you right on through. If it returns a non-200 status, mm-hmm. it shows the user your cached version of it instead. Or it asks, I think. It's got a pop-up. And it says, do you want to view okay. the cached version or try to find it at the original source? That kind of bridges that problem at that point because it's still a link to their site. It can still be followed by a bot. It can still get the scoring it needs at that point. But you've also got the sort of safety net that if it goes away, you have your own copy of it that you can show people. Um, Hmm. Caveats. And this goes for archival services, too. Archival services work in a legal gray area as far as copyright is concerned. Mm -hmm. And Internet Archive has confronted this a couple times, and usually it just results in settlements with no clarity in terms of is it legal to copy a page from somebody's site wholesale and make it yours, (laughs) put it on your thing. Right. Oh, and they happen to show ads on your thing. What? My, my instinct is no, like that's not legal. And, and the way internet archive has always stated is like, they don't want to archive stuff from people who don't want their stuff archived which mm-hmm. is their polite way of saying, if you just ask us to take it down, we will. Right. But that's not how copyright works. That seems, seems very sus. That's, yeah, I mean... Pro, I, even maybe even process. I I believe in, like, archiving stuff. I think that it's important to make sure stuff remains available. This gets into the mm-hmm. philosophical side of this. But I ha- I can't say that and not acknowledge the fact that there is sort of a legal gray area to copying that and mm-hmm. making it available. I just don't know, and, and I can't give you legal advice on that if you want to take that risk. <laughs> the, only, the, the real problem with Amberlink is that it has not been updated in three years, and it does not look like it is going to get any updates. Parts of it are broken. It has API tie-ins to archive.org, for instance, mm-hmm. so that it can push snapshots you take into the okay. Wayback Machine for you so that you don't have to store them. That stuff's broken. It does not work. Um, the API has changed and nobody has updated it in three years. So huh. you're you're on your own in terms of – it looks like it still works perfectly fine for local, like if you just want to store everything locally. But you're on your own if you want to try to take advantage of remote storage uh, hmm. with that. Um, another tool. We've got a couple more here. Google Search Console. 
Um, That's a good one. Uh, you mentioned like you know checking your four hundred fours and mm-hmm. and look at your four hundred four report. Google search consoles were, I mean, WordPress and stuff can also generate four hundred four reports, but um, Google Search Console is a great way to go in and see where Google thinks you have outages. Right. That can give you a whole list of pages to go in and do something about and know where it is. Problem is, it's only good for your links on your site. Mm-hmm. It won't tell you where you've linked outside your site that is broken, but it is a great way to see how other people are seeing your site and what they may be seeing broken. Right. I think it's important to do, like, it may not give you the whole answer, but it gives you important information for sure. So, two tools I want to throw at you. And mm-hmm. then we'll get into the final leg of this. First off, Screaming Frog. Screaming Frog is an SEO scanner tool. Yes, I do. Don't <laughs> ask me. This is back when things had cute names before they had like missing vowels, like flicker. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, my my father's pond is full of Screaming Frogs, so <laughs> I, I hate them. No, <laughs> Screaming Frog is a good tool. Um. The big restriction is if you don't pay for it, you are limited to scanning 500 URLs. Okay. Which you'll discover doesn't go very far um, <laughs> in some cases. If you've got a small site, it's fine, but you, I think you'll find real quickly you might outgrow that. But it is a very good tool, uh, and it is worth paying for if uh, if you've got a bigger site, uh, by all means. But it will <laughs> car site. It can also do a lot of other things. Um, it is an SEO tool, so it will tell you all kinds of information about your metadata on the pages and, and all kinds of things. But okay, big advantage of it, it will tell you where all your broken links are. Nice. Give you a report, good to go. And you can then go in and start fixing stuff or, or know where uh, where all that stuff is. The big one is Xenu Link Sleuth. I'd never heard of this before. I am. Uh, I do not know how you can be my age and not know this tool. <laughs> we, we never used it, but apparently like, it, 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 it avoided you. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing: like everything, this is an imperfect tool. It has mm. not been updated in 12 years, <laughs> and it is Windows only. But damn, it's good. <laughs> it is a simple tool that is designed to do one thing. Take a URL or a list of URLs, scan it, and tell you everything broken. Mm-hmm. It generates, you can view it right in the app, or it will generate an HTML file for you. You can read in the browser that breaks down the broken links on which pages. It gives you a quick statistics breakdown of everything um, so that you can get an idea of like what you know what the state of things are for you. Mm-hmm. I've got mine up right now, so this is the way I scanned uh, Drunken UX. I can tell you things like we have uh, 578 URLs that came back as an XML feed, uh, 743 URLs that were to JSON uh, data. Okay. Uh, we've got, let's see, 11 URLs to SVGs. Like, okay. it breaks everything out. It'll tell you the size of those, like what the percentage that is of all of your stuff. Um, it breaks down all of your responses. You know, we had 5,080 URLs that were okay. One oh. URL with no object data, 107 404s, seven uh, 999s, 104 no such hosts. Like, all Wait, of them are broken a, down. What, what's a 999? A 999, I, I think it's a throwaway error that is generated oh, okay. by LinkedIn. 
LinkedIn, I think, tries to prevent crawling. And because I think all of them were like to LinkedIn profile IDs when I saw the uh, report. But this gives you an HTML file that you can just save and reference then for <laughs> all of that broken link information. It will scan your internal links and your external links. So that's you can cool. go in. That's what I'm going to go in. Like I say, I'm going to start looking at a bunch of our show notes. And mm-hmm. I saw a bunch of these articles that are broken. I saw at one point I linked to Facebook on our contact page. And I never <laughs> noticed I, I put a T in it. Facebooked. Facebooked. Yeah. <laughs> and so it caught that and said, hey, this link to your Facebook account does not work. And so I can go in and fix that now. Been that way for four years. I never caught it. Uh, so I wanna... you, know what these, you know what these won't catch, though? Is typo squatting. Or yeah. lapsed domains. Like, so your old game site, like, someone could prop up that domain and then make every destiny, every inbound link be a 200. And then they could, yeah. Yeah. That'd be rude and unhelpful for them, for it's that matter. Exactly what I would expect from someone who buys domain like that. So here's the problem. Case. I want to end on this and just, just mm-hmm. do a little thought exercise because here's the thing, right? Here we are on the cusp of technology, 30 years uh, in its sort of maturity. Obviously, it existed before that, but the last 30 years, real solid, has been like the internet era. Mm -hmm. We have technology in front of us capable of sharing the knowledge of all of humankind with us. Mm -hmm. And we can't make the half-life of a link longer than two years. (laughs) And... All the archival services notwithstanding, like, it feels like we are in need of a true solution to how we reference stuff on the internet. Now, I know DOIs are a thing. I know pearls are a thing. Those don't solve this problem. If the original stuff goes away, it doesn't help us. Uh, but, yeah, these these things are meant to help you find stuff that does exist. Because the the way it gets described in, in these articles, right, is like, the internet is now a library with billions of books and no card catalog. Hmm. You know, this convention that we developed search engines back in the 90s designed to find the link and then follow that link indefinitely and archive all of that information so that you can search through it is an artifact of the fact that we didn't do anything to make it easy to like Mm -hmm. find things in perpetuity. I don't know what the answer is. Like, this is where I'm just like, I'm, I'm just chewing the yarn a little bit on this. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that solution would look like, but it, it feels like it would be some kind of hybrid of either the archival systems or we need somebody like a Wikipedia Wikipedia, uh, Seven over seventy thousand Wikipedia articles have at least one bad link in them, at this point. But those are like external links, though, right? Yeah, those are like the links that you know the citations, right? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about how like sites, the the size of a website has just exploded, right? You know, like they're bigger than the original Doom executable, but I, I don't think you need to copy. Like, like to at least be useful, you don't have to copy the the images and media and uh, other things. Now you're thinking with your noodle. <laughs> Text compresses really well, so I mean it would still be an absurd amount of data, but 
but then this also gets back to the the thing we also harp on here, which is you know you should always make transcripts of other things, like we said earlier. Um, if you make transcripts for a video, then the, at least the content from that, the knowledge, the information, can then be preserved easily and compressed easily. I'm uh, of the mindset, and you started hitting on it there. This idea that archiving information so that it can be referenced in the future requires two things, I think. I think we need to do two very specific things. One is we need to update copyright law. Mm -hmm. We need to update copyright law for a million reasons, but we need we would have to do it for this specifically because I think we need to remove the ambiguity and the gray area that uh, operations like the Internet Archive are currently flying under. Mm -hmm. It needs to be okay to snapshot something for posterity for the purposes of keeping it referenceable. Like explicitly uh, okay. Yeah, like that it that needs to be a codified thing that it is okay to do that. Mm -hmm. Um the other thing I think we need is a data standard for it. And I think part of the way we get there is by a utilizing really good semantic HTML, mark your shit up well. <laughs> but we don't need design in most right. cases to archive information. Right. We need the data. We need the text. We may need the images. Like there may be graphs and charts and stuff in, in things like that, but we don't need the navigation on your site. We don't need your right. logo. We don't need all the other stuff. We need a way to know that the body of your page is the body of your page. And that's the thing that really needs some way of permanently mm -hmm. referencing it and take that, get rid of all the extraneous stuff. You reduce the size of what you need to store that way. I don't have a great way of like articulating how to get there because I can think of a million reasons why that would not work well. <laughs> I mean, just, just look at pages on uh, the Wayback Machine and look at how much stuff doesn't work right. Look at sites that used to be run entirely in Flash. I did that <laughs> recently. I was I was looking for an old, old band website from the early aughts that I used to visit, uh -huh. and I forgot that their site was entirely in Flash. Well, it's in the Wayback Machine, I can tell you that much. <laughs> there's there's also the question of like, you know, what about the right to be forgotten? Like should Right. Um, like do we need to have all content remembered forever? And given some of the CD stuff that's on there too, like do we want to have all content remembered forever? Yeah. I mean, and absolutely it is a fair question yeah. to ask. The the counterpoint I guess I would ask to that is if you wrote a book and you published that book, and it's out there, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it, it, you could theoretically try to go buy every copy of that book and then burn them and get rid of them. But it's entirely possible that, you know, once you put a book out there, it's out there. Mm -hmm. And there will always be copies of it floating around somebody could reference. Now, it's it it's not a great, when you move that into, like, the meat space, it doesn't work real, you know, as well, certainly. I think, right. I think where it matters in terms of the internet is is somebody else referencing it for some reason i one one difference with the books though when you put a book out there you are very intentionally putting a book out there and you know what having a book out there means sure if i write a tweet or something or if i comment on a blog or whatever if i create content for the internet i especially if i am maybe a younger person who hasn't had life experience yet 
um, you may not consider the ramifications of what putting that into the universe does. I told you we were going to get philosophical. <laughs> I mean, no, you're absolutely right. And the tweet's a good example, right? Like, even in recent, you know, you look at an article that references a tweet, and it was something, you know, a little, eh, um, or uh, not to make this political, but of course, like with Donald Trump's stuff. Mm-hmm. And everybody was really smart because, for the most part, they screenshotted his stuff. Now, granted, there were also services that were literally scraping his stuff in real time to save it. Um, but like for the purposes of news articles and things, most of his Twitter activity was presented as screenshots. So it would survive the fact mm. that now none of his stuff is available. You can't link to any of his stuff on Twitter. It's gone. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's, and, and I guess, yeah, I mean, do we tweet, tweet, <laughs> do we treat, uh, I'm, st- <laughs> I'm drinking sweet tea guys. I'm not even drinking alcohol here. <laughs> I can confirm that. Yes. Do we treat things like social media activity differently from stuff in a blog? You know, something that's article or tutorial or whatever. I was imagining that maybe like you might say, like have some kind of metadata, like an RDF tag or something in your document to say like, yes, this is archivable. But then like, I just know there's going to be a shit ton of like advertising bullshit and whatever else people like opting in to get that exposure when you're looking through the archives. We want to learn kind of what you guys think about all of this. A, I want to know how do you deal with link rot on your websites? What What is your approach? What tools do you have? I've been looking kind of like for maybe a node script or something that could run. A lot of CMSs have built-in link checker tools, things like that. Are you relying on those? How are you managing to like keep your stuff up to date or are you not doing it at all? Um, I think that's the answer a lot of people would give is they, once they've written something, they don't think about it. Um, but then also, what do you think we could do about it? What could we build? What, what kind of thing is missing in our protocols and in our toolboxes that would make it so that we could reference things and trust that that reference never goes away, but also Mm -hmm. while retaining value to the original authors and giving credit where credit's due. Mm -hmm. Help us out. Sit back, relax. We'll be right back after this moment. I hope that was fun for everybody. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it was something that you want to do something about and make your uh, website not smell all rotty and nasty because everybody knows when links rot. <laughs> Whoopie doo. Um, find us on Instagram.com slash Chuck and UX podcast and on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Chuck and UX. And Come and talk with us on drunkenux.com slash discord and tell us all the things that Michael just asked about and more on discord because that's where you can talk to us. That I'm just going in circles now. Is the way that works. Yes, I know. It is very, very <laughs> late at night. Uh, everybody, uh, keep just this little bit of information in your head because when it comes to managing your websites and making sure that things work, you want people to be able to click those links, read what was ever there and what inspired you and what motivated you uh, to uh, not just help out the folks who wrote that stuff, but to keep your own users close. <laughs> but your personas farther away. <laughs> I see what you did there. That's not the way that goes, but you right. get the gist. 